Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to pick a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is Natasha Trethewey, a former U.S. Poet Laureate and a current Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. She's received a Heinz Award, an Academy of American Poets Fellowship, and a Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, among many, many, many other distinctions. Welcome, Natasha. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. So the poem you brought with you today is Toadstools by Charles Wright. Can you say a bit about why this poem stuck out to you? Well, you know, this is a poem that um, when I first read it and read the final lines that you'll hear, um, it almost knocked me over because it spoke directly to my experience. Um, It gave an articulation of something that I had felt for a long time but hadn't quite said myself. Let's hear this. This is Natasha Trethewey reading Toadstools by Charles Wright. Toadstools. The toadstools are starting to come up, circular and dry. Nothing will touch them. Gophers or chipmunks, wasps or swallows. They glow in the twilight like rooted will-o'-the-wisps. Nothing will touch them. As though little roundabouts from the bunched, unburyable, powers, dominions, as though orphans rode herd in the short grass. As though they had heard the call, they will always be with us, transcenders of the world. Someone will try to stick his beak into their otherworldly styrofoam. Someone may try to taste a taste of forever. For some, it's a refuge. For some, a shady place to fall down. Grief is a floating barge boat. Who knows where it's going to moor? That was Toadstools by Charles Wright, which was published in the May 10th, 2010 issue of the magazine. Uh, I love this poem, too, as you know, and I actually uh, picked it for the Best American Poetry 2011. I think I reprinted it in another <laughs> book. I mean, it's such a... It deserves reprinting. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of, a, it's this interesting reversal to me, and I think you put it so well, the ending, and I want to hear more about that. But it's also this spring poem turned on its head. You know, it's it's not about renewal, though it is, but it's also about regret in yeah, some way. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I mean, of course, the, the, the toadstools are a kind of renewal because they come up out of decay. Um, you know, when you cut a tree down, for example, and you think it's gone, they will emerge at some right. point, um, living on what was there before. Um, so in that way, you know, they are um, a, a kind of real um, indicator of of spring and renewal, but also their renewal is out of loss. They mm. are they are thriving because of what is no longer there. And that that 
that's why the ending gets to me so much because I, I'm in the poem just sort of looking at toadstools and thinking about how you just see them plopping up everywhere. And then all of a sudden, what seems like a leap, a place that I'd never expected to go, this idea that um, they are the kind of moorings of, of loss, of grief. Well, there's so much there, too. Uh, what a great word, moor where it's going to moor, mm-hmm. you know, mooring is both a uh, resting and a kind of preparing for further <laughs> journeys, I suppose. Mm-hmm. There's also to me this thing in the poem, it's not just decay that the poem evokes, it's also danger. Yeah. And how that they are themselves harbingers of loss. Someone will try to stick his beak into their otherworldly styrofoam. Someone may try to taste a taste of forever. I mean, what a what a killer set of lines. I think it's to Charles Wright's great skill to get styrofoam into a poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to think of the sponginess of the uh, the toadstools as styrofoam. Yeah, it's a word you wouldn't expect to see but in there. But it somehow but it's otherworldly. otherworldly, you know, those multi-syllabic <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, words colliding mm-hmm. feels like the toadstools coming up. But then that there's that danger. Someone may try someone will try mm-hmm. you know so these 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 two kind of wills and and maybes these these possible futures are lurking yeah you could almost read that as an act of despair mm. um, who might try to taste that forever would it be someone despairing or the the accidents of you know thinking you're picking edible mushrooms it could happen either way but right. i i feel both of those possibilities at once in the poem. Yeah, it has that danger, but also daring you mm-hmm. as though little roundabouts from the bunched unburyable powers, dominions, as though orphans rode herd in the short grass. Mm-hmm. And then it keeps going. <laughs> you know, like like I, would, I would be like, stop after that. I'd be like, you know, I, I, that's pretty good. You know? yeah. <laughs> and then he keeps taking us further because I think that's what the poem demands. Well, and it's, it, it's the taking it um, farther for us that really is what gets me because those two last lines, what he articulated for me was um, this feeling of living in a state of bereavement my entire adult life. And it's not always that I'm sad. It's not always that I'm in the throes of the most difficult part of my grief, but it's always there, ready to come back. Mm. And I don't know when it's going to come back. I don't know what will make it emerge. And so to think that, you know... um, Grief, like toadstools, just emerge whenever, um, unexpectedly, um, is what it feels like to live with a kind of grief that comes back again and again. Sure. I feel you. And I I see you there, you know, because I I think it's very powerful. And there's two things I would say. One is, uh, you know, you know very well how powerfully you have written about loss, I think, and how I think you've evoked it in poetry. And here's a poem that's seemingly impersonal that I think strikes us as very personal, and I know it strikes you. Um, One question I have, I think, is a a question about nature. Mm -hmm. Because for me, nature 
when, say, I lost my father. The nature, not at first, not always, but eventually was some slight bomb, you know, uh, Though it was almost hard, I think in the poem I talk about, you know, the world, it, grief would be easy if there wasn't such beauty, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes you're like, why hasn't the world stopped? Because mine has. Yeah. And that keeping turning is so tough. But how do you take nature here? And how do you maybe in general think of nature in your poems or in poems of grief? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we ask that question about why isn't nature grieving with me. Right. Why is everything so beautiful, as mm-hmm. you as you mentioned? Um, and so I think sometimes people often think that grieving is always completely about sadness mm. and not that it is complex mm-hmm. and varied right. and that um, you could move from a place of feeling the indifference of nature, as mm-hmm. Liselle Mueller put it mm. in her wonderful poem, um, to feeling like, oh, nature does see. This is a, the way nature is presented in this poem says to me, oh, nature does see. And it's showing me, it's mirroring exactly the way my grief feels. Mm-hmm. So I feel seen um, by nature and by this poem. Right. Well, and I think that line, grief is a floating barge boat. That's a complicated floating. You know, it's not sinking. It's not drowning. It's this floating barge boat. And it might carry us somewhere. It might carry us here. It has that quality. And I think the other thing he's achieved in this poem, at least for me, and tell me what you think, is that he's made it so that grief is natural. Mm-hmm. And I think we so often think of grief as somehow outside of what should be happening. I mean, that's one of the tricks, uh, I think, that we play in loss is like, well, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Why do I? You know, I wasn't that close to that person or I was so close to that person. I should feel fine. I knew they were going to, you know, they were older, but I've never seen anyone be able to escape that feeling that it was too soon. It was never the right time. Right. Well, I mean, it is natural, and you're right that the poem shows us that. Grief uh, is the transcender of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in another place, Charles Wright, in his introduction to uh, Best American that he edited, he writes that um, cleverness doesn't endure, only pain endures, and the rhythms of pain. Wow. And that is natural. That's intense. Mm-hmm. I love his work, uh, too, because he's able to, out of these lyric intense moments, able to assemble a larger floating barge boat. You know, he's able, uh, you know, sometimes it's been referred to the trilogy of trilogies, you know, the Appalachian Book of the Dead, his his kind of larger project. Um, What do you make of that? Uh, And how do you think of those things like that, that gathering together? Well, I just had a a, a wonderful conversation with Charles, um, and I think you're right to sort of see that project of his as a as a gathering. He in in our conversation, he told me that he did not sort of come to grief in the same way that I have with mm-hmm. the same kind of loss. It was something accumulated, something learned over a long time. 
and to finally decide that that is the thing that is the transcender of the world really does say something about his wide-ranging intellect and um, the places that he looks to find what is necessary to say. Is this a Southern poem? Well... <laughs> well, I want to say all poems are Southern poems. <laughs> all good poems are. <laughs> That's right. Every man has himself. <laughs> Kevin That's Young, right. I see you. <laughs> oh no. Um, well, there's a quality of it that some of that what we're talking about feels like there is this Southern aesthetic there, and you know maybe it's that connection to nature. But what about in the in the language? I keep yeah. thinking about yeah. this. I yeah. keep thinking about um, this compound. Uh, word he's got here, barge boat. Mm. Um, why is it a barge boat? I tried to look it up because I thought um, I'll, I'll just see if that's the, the word I can find. And I, I didn't find a, it like that right. in the dictionary. You just find barge because right, that's right. a barge is a boat that <laughs> right, floats. Right. But he's got both of the words there. Um, right. And barge think, boat's more of a boat than a barge. Yeah, and, I and think, a boat uh, on its own is not a barge. You know? No, and so, it's, but there's something in that compound word that yeah. sounds very southern to me. That's right, um, like cook stove. <laughs> yeah, yeah, chair sit. You know, these great friend girl. <laughs> yes, these these great compound words. I mean, it, it appears too when he says. As the orphans rode herd. Rode herd, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think other people say that, but there's yeah. a way, too, uh, that it's about a kind of orphan aesthetic in in this poem that interests me. Yeah, I think when I when I first read it, so focused was I on the way that um, the end of the poem hit me that it took me a while to go back and see the other ways that it was already working on me. Um, the idea of, of dominion and um, mm-hmm. those orphans. I mean, certainly that's also my experience. Sure, yeah. sure. And dominion is a powerful word there because he's describing this dominion, this domain, if you will, of these toadstools, which, as you've pointed out, is is grief, is, is transcendent. It's of the world, but it's also beyond. Mm-hmm. The poem reminds me a teeny bit of Yusef Komenyaka's O to the Maggot, where he says, (laughs) little master of the earth, no one gets to heaven without going through you first. You know, and he manages to to capture that that transcendent in the smallest things. You know, in in some way, this is an ode, but it isn't just an ode to toadstools or or a uh, meditation. It's also an ode to grief and, and yeah. this question, which I think is important that it's a question and not a declaration. Right. Yeah. Well, he could say no one knows, where, but instead, who knows? Because who knows? There's, there's a kind of, there's a 1% chance that someone knows. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe it's, it's the transcendent or the dominion or, or some future poet. Yeah, I think you, you read it like that and you can also read it like, the shrug of your shoulders, like who knows where yeah. it's going to more? Because I know that I don't. I don't know when it's going to anchor and pull me down with it for a moment. Um, and I don't know when it's going to be a refuge. Mm. Because, you know, even as I'm sort of tearing up trying to talk about it, 
the poem becomes the refuge so that even as I must look like I am grieving, I'm very happy. Yeah. Well, I think you've you've picked a, a, a powerful one. You know, this one, um, when I saw it in The New Yorker, I cut it out, and it is the one poem that I have pinned above my desk, and it made it through the fire. Uh, oh, right. So it's a little smoky, but I still have it. <laughs> wow. It's a survivor. Yeah. I'm sort of still going through it because we're not back at our home yet, but um, very soon, I think. We were um, building a a library to house my father's uh, library. My father was a poet, Eric Trethaway. He died a few years ago, and so um, I got all his wonderful books. And so that's where the fire started, in the place where we Mm. were building a library. None of his books were in there. They were still in boxes, um, and so they were in the basement. So there's a little bit of water damage um, from the firefighters putting out the fire, but they were all saved. Oh, that's good. And the firefighters put out the fire um, at the top of the third floor landing, which is uh, where my study is. And so they saved everything. Uh, wow. I didn't lose any of my computer and everything. Well, the computers melted, <laughs> but the books, you know, they're packed so tightly in the shelves that right. no air gets between right. them. So paper. Survives, is what survives. Yeah. So there's things that are a little yellowed, a little smoky, but um, I get to keep all those things. I have all those things still. Yeah. Or I'll get them back. Well, they're a different kind of survivor. Yeah. Wow. Can we talk about your poll? Sure. In the November 20th, 2017 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker printed your poem Repentance, which you'll read for us momentarily. But first, is there anything you'd like to say about it? Anything that might be helpful for listeners to have in mind? Yeah, this is a poem that uh, took me a very long time to write. I tried writing it for years because I thought that it would have come out in my book, Thrall, which came out in 2012. It was a poem that I was working on in particular for that book. And I wasn't able to finish it actually until... My father was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand now that I couldn't finish it because as I worked on it, I kept thinking that the repentance, the person who needed to repent, was my father. And it wasn't until he was gone that I realized I needed to repent. Wow. And then I couldn't. Yeah. When I took the poem out um, years later to look at it, as you do, you take things out of a drawer that you haven't worked on in a while, I read it, and it was almost exactly as you have it here, Mm -hmm. as it appeared, except for the very last line. Well, well, let's, let's hear it. Let's hear it so we can hear that last line. So it's an ekphrastic poem after Vermeer's A Maid Asleep. Repentance. To make it right, Vermeer painted, then painted over, this scene. A woman alone at a table, the cloth pushed back, rough folds at the edge, as if someone had risen in haste, abandoning the chair beside her. A wine glass nearly empty, just in her reach. 
Though she's been called idle and drunken, a woman drowsing, you might see in her gesture melancholia. Eyelids drawn, she rests her head in her hand. Beyond her, a still life, white jug, bowl of fruit, a goblet overturned. Before this, a man stood in the doorway, a dog lay on the floor. Perhaps to exchange loyalty for betrayal, Vermeer erased the dog and made of the man a mirror, framed by the open door. Pentimento, the word for a painter's change of heart, revision on canvas, means the same as remorse after sin. Were she to rise a mirror behind her, the woman might see herself as I did, turning to rise from my table, then back as if into Vermeer's scene. It was after the quarrel, after you'd had again too much to drink, after the bottle did not shatter, though I'd brought it down hard on the table, and the dog had crept from the room to hide. Later, I found a trace of what I'd done, bruise on the table the size of my thumb. Worrying it, I must have looked as she does, eyes downcast, my head on the heel of my palm. In paint, a story can change, mistakes be undone. Imagine, still life with father and daughter, a moment so far back, there's still time to take the glass from your hand or mine. That was Repentance by Natasha Trethway. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future. 
so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, um, reading it again, hearing it aloud, it's so beautiful. It's so uh, deliberate, too. And, and the form, I think there's a tension in a way between the form, which has this great scattered, and I mean that in the best way, energy. It has no punctuation. It has gaps in the line, something I, I, I love personally and, you know, learn from James Dickey. But here it feels like speech. It feels like spokenness, but also a bit of a, a painterly quality. Um, I wonder about that form. And I know from your work that at the end of Thrall, you sort of started into this form. Is that something you think you would continue beyond these poems? In in this poem, it came about because I needed to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And even when I read it, I still feel very uncomfortable because I have deliberately made line breaks and spaces in places that otherwise feel unnatural to me, mm-hmm. to, to the kind of poet I think of myself as being. Right. So it forces me to read it as I have made it on the page, which forces me, um, I think, to to feel what um, a difficult and choked repentance it is mm-hmm. that I'm making. Uh, hard to, to, to swallow, hard to accept... Um, my own uh, culpability, my own uh, complicity in this moment of estrangement that sure. the poem is trying to enact. But the the reason I even came to attempting to write a poem that had no punctuation and used the line in this way uh, goes back to um, a time when you and I read together from your... Um, anthology uh, about grief. Right. And I was reading the W.S. Merwin poem uh-huh. about um, passing the anniversary of... For the anniversary of my death. Exactly. And I read it, and I remember later on you said to me, whoa, you sure did punctuate that poem. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what is he talking about? Um, and there was this particular poem, I mean, I hate to even confess this, of his that I'd been teaching to my students all for years, this poem I loved, and never once talking about the lack of punctuation because there's such clarity in the line, um, in the syntax, in the rhetorical structure of the poem. So one day my editor, Michael Collier, who's also a wonderful poet, um, was looking at some poems in the manuscript that became Thrall, and he said, you know, I think maybe you ought to to try to let go of of punctuation sometimes. He said, you know, 
um, Merwin talked about how he felt like it just pinned the poem down to the page. And I, sure. I think you should think about that. You should go back and read Merwin again and think about it. And I hung up the phone thinking, what is he talking about? <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> the nerve. What does he mean, How Merwin? And, and, and then, of course, I, I go open Merwin, and I saw sure. that I've been punctuating his poems. with. I've been mentally. imprinting it oh, mentally because it's so present for me in sure. terms of the clarity of the syntax. So getting rid of it for the first time, what, for me, was an attempt to do that um, yeah. without the actual punctuation yeah. there. It feels like in this poem, it's very much what I think of with Merwin gets rid of punctuation at that point in the lice, you know, sort of a halfway through, literally halfway through that book. And so there's this quality of of not just letting go, but embracing something else. Mm -hmm. And I think this poem just uh, topically is about that, mm -hmm. you know, in the inner workings of it. Or about that, and you see that in what I would call sort of the interweaved two parts. The first being the Vermeer part, and the second this bruise on the table, which is just a beautiful, haunting uh, image. I wondered about that. Like, did Vermeer come first? Did you always know you wanted to write about Vermeer, or is this painting? It, it's so much a, a, about you know both imprint and erasure. You mm -hmm. know, because that the right. idea of, of of pentimento of getting rid of something that was you know there before by painting over it, and then sometimes it shows through. And it, what right? So even in the erasure, there's still the the imprint of the thing. You know, I think probably for me. As often happens when I write ekphrastic poems, there's something that I've been feeling or thinking that hasn't found its just articulation, and then I'll see a painting that seems to encapsulate exactly that thing. Mm -hmm. I had not, in you know, I had not seen that painting before the incident with my father that needed my repentance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then I saw it. And, you know, it's it's just so it, the way you find yourself drawn to something before you know why. Sure. And I didn't find out why I was drawn to it until I started describing it. Yeah. It was just something about that gesture of her with her head in her hand and also the way that the tablecloth was pushed and the chair. And you knew, it, even before I knew about the pentimento that was in it, the 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 story that the painting seemed to tell was about some interaction, someone getting up hastily enough mm. to push that back, which of course made me think about this right, argument right. I had with my father, which then made me inter more interested in the painting, and that's when I read about the pentimento, what had been there before. How fascinating that Vermeer got rid of, and why he changed it. Yeah. And why I wanted to change the story of what had happened. Right. Yeah, it's very powerful, that that idea of wanting to change what I'd done, the size of my thumb, those little subtle here internal rhymes that I think in others of your poems they might be end rhymes. Mm -hmm. Here it really, it's so impactful. Um, and the piece itself has impacted. I was thinking about that word you use, quarrel. The quarrel, yeah. which I think is such a powerful word. And um, I feel like the poem, too, has this, and your work in general has this kind of quarrel with 
art, you know, with representation of self uh, and of, of others and, and of the big O other. And I think very much Thrall is a book about representations of art and race. And here it's sort of, it's almost good, perhaps I'm speaking for just myself, that it isn't in there because I, I feel like that book does have those great poems that reckon with uh, the father and and that great poem elegy, which, as I recall, you had buried in some <laughs> part of that book, and I was like, "This is the most incredible poem, and it needs to be number one, yeah. the first poem." You know, but you've also then, since you know these poems, done a selected poems. How does this poem, Repentance, fit into that? And how do you think of, you know, that's a strange thing to have done, having done yeah. it. Uh, how do you look back on this? Well, you know, I think you hit it when you when you picked out the word quarrel because it that this is what it goes back to i mean when i talk about it with you i called it an argument but there's a reason that it's you know not an argument in the poem but a quarrel my father used to say to me um all the time quoting yeats um of the quarrel with others we make rhetoric but of the quarrel with ourselves poetry and so here's a poem in which i'm having the quarrel with my father, but I can't finish it until the quarrel is with myself. That's why this poem didn't get finished. And so when I started, you know, when I was working on Thrall, the book that I thought it was going to go in, that's when I still believed that it was my father. My quarrel was still with him, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't yet enough with myself. Putting that poem, as you mentioned first, um, your impulse was right because that's a poem in which I I try to introduce the quarrel with myself um, even if I don't fully get there until uh, you know this poem that doesn't make it in you right. know the th- that that book began with two epigraphs one from Robert Penn Warren and the other from T.S. Eliot that read what is love one name for it is knowledge after such knowledge what forgiveness and I always knew those would be the epigraphs but I always thought it was about my father needing <laughs> my forgiveness Gosh. and not the other way around. Wow. So it took, you know, too many years for me sure. um, to finish repentance. And it, so it, in, in my new and selected, it is the first poem in the final section of, of new poems. Yeah. And it actually follows... Uh, elegy. Elegy ends the yeah. thrall section because you rearranged. Yeah. Uh, and and I have a sense of why, but why why did you do that? So that so that the the book would be more than the the sum of its parts. That you know that it would have an entirely different arc. And I think I was hoping that it would answer people who might not have understood mm. why I write. Um, that's a big still still worrying about them peoples. Well, well, in the way that, in, to the extent to which it diminishes my mother, yes, mm. because too often, you know, there's this easy line that people draw between my father and me because my father's a poet, uh. therefore I'm a poet. It's a problem because it's it's sure. not only the legacy of the father, of course, it's also the legacy of the white father. Mm. Um, so it's race too. You know, when I was growing up. People, white people constantly said to me, if I did anything well, oh, that's your white side. As if 
nothing good, none of my talents could come from my mother. Um, Who's a fascinating person and uh, who I know you're writing about in other contexts, not just the poetry, which of course is tremendous, but prose too. And and what I've learned about her from you and from your archive uh, is so powerful. Uh, I don't see how anyone could think that, but, you know, uh, racism is a powerful... It's a powerful thing. <laughs> it's a drug. And, you know, it, and it leads to erasure. Yeah. Um, you know, after I won the Pulitzer, it, it, it almost seemed like I had been made only by my father, as if I was like um, Athena, right? You won the Pulitzer for... Uh, Native Guard, one of the great books of the past 20, 30 years, if not more. Um, I teach teach it often, and one of the things I, I find when I have taught it in the past is how just rigorous, how formal, formally rigorous it is, but also how emotionally rigorous. It isn't, and it's very much about your mother's legacy, and I hope you see that now, if not always. Well, I do, but I, I think people don't. I yeah. think people people read um, Thrall also um, as being um, so much about being mixed race. Mm. And for me, it was much more about trying to make sense of across time and space <laughs> the deeply ingrained and often unexamined notions of racial difference and racial hierarchy, right. which are the bedrocks of white supremacy that, you know, were codified during the Enlightenment and still people believe in this idea of the taint of blackness. Right. So it was more about this idea of blackness the, the curse than, of ham. than mixed raceness, <laughs> yes. you know? Well, and also about whiteness. Well, yeah. I, think, I find, and maybe this is a way to, to think about this maybe, is that I find when I write a personal book, it's really about history. Mm-hmm. And then when I write a history <laughs> book, it's, it's really, really personal. Yeah. And, and so I feel like people are mistaking what may, to me, is a history book, exactly. the, the thrall, say. Exactly. Um, and what I think is so beautiful about Native Guard is it's both. Yeah. It's so obviously uh, knit together and so beautifully. And the poetry I admire whether that's uh, Rita Dove or Gwendolyn Brooks or Charles Wright. You know, these are people who are writing through history, um, but in really inventive, interesting, personal ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, have to, you have to get there. Well, I mean, and so in order to sort of say, you know, definitively, you know, <laughs> hear what my existential wounds are. I've got two of them. You know, I, I quote Auden all the time, you know, Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Mad Mississippi yeah. inflicted my first wound. Yeah. But my deeper wound came when I was 19. Yeah. And l- my mother's death and living with that these 34 years. So and even and dealing with, you know, people's misapprehensions and perceptions about domestic violence. So the book begins with a poem called Imperatives for Carrying On in the Aftermath. This is the selected poems. Yeah. Monument. That's really trying to say... Here's the dumb questions I get. Here are the dumb (laughs) questions I get. So here's an answer to all the dumb questions that you can get from friends that I got from my father. Sure. And it ends with an articulation, a poem called Articulation. Sure. Which is ekphrastic, too. Yeah. About... Why I have to do this. Uh, this is a wonderful conversation and, and so powerful to get to talk with you. Thank you so much, Natasha, for talking with us today. Thank you, Kevin. Repentance by Natasha Trethway. 
as well as Charles Wright's Toadstools, can be found on NewYorker.com. Charles Wright's latest book is Oblivion Banjo. Natasha Trethewey's most recent collection is Monument. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.